This is Classic Lutheran Preaching on KNNA LP 95.7, Lincoln, Nebraska. This is Pastor John Schmidt with an abridged presentation of Martin Luther's sermon for the 16th Sunday after Trinity. This is from the John Nicholas Lenker Collection, published in 1905 and reissued by Baker Bookhouse in 1983. The scripture text for this sermon is Luke chapter 7, beginning at verse 11. And it came to pass afterwards that Jesus went to a city called Nain, and his disciples went with him and a great multitude. Now when he drew near to the gate of the city, behold, there was carried out one that was dead, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And much people of the city was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Weep not. And he came nigh and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say unto thee, Arise. And he that was dead sat up, and began to speak. And he gave him to his mother, and fear took hold on all. And they glorified God, saying, A great prophet is risen among us, and God hath visited his people. And this report went forth concerning him in the whole of Judea, and all the region round about. Thus far our text. This portion of the Gospel teaches us to know the grace, work, and power of God in the kingdom of Christ our Lord, and to praise and thank Him as well as cheerfully to serve and obey Him. For this miracle and act of mercy are related in order that we may recognize Him as our helper in all times of need, and then when we acknowledge Him as our helper, that we love Him, thank Him for His benefits, and willingly suffer and endure whatever He allows to befall us especially since we know with certainty that he does not permit anything to happen to us in order to destroy us, but only to try our faith to see whether our trust and refuge securely rest in him or in something else. It is the nature of flesh and blood always to seek help and comfort from other sources than God, where they should only be sought, and at last when all other help fails to come to God for aid, if indeed things turn out so well that they do not wholly despair of God and rush to Satan. For many, when no other help avails, give themselves over to the devil. This results from the fact that they do not know God and think that he has forgotten them, if he permits some small misfortune to happen to them. Over against such thoughts, this gospel presents a picture of how the Lord Jesus Christ acted towards the poor widow in the time of her greatest need at the death of her son. On earth no greater need can arise than that caused by death, when the world and everything else have an end. In this greatest extremity he helped her, and raised the dead to life as an example for us who hear it. For this was done not merely for the sake of the widow and her son, but, as St. John says in chapter 20, but these things are done and written that you may believe. In this way he impresses upon the hearts of all this and his other miracles performed by the blessed Lord Jesus, as if he meant to say, Behold, now you hear how this widow's son was raised from the dead. Let this be preached into your heart in order that you may accept it. And in this learn what God can and will do, that he can and will help you in all times of need, no matter how great they may be. And if it should happen that your need should press heavily upon you and you realize that earthly counsel and help are unavailing, that then you do not despair, but let this example strengthen your heart, so that you may look to the Lord Jesus for the best that he can give. This was, indeed, 
no jest in the life of the widow. First she lost her husband and then her only son, whom she loved. He died. Among those people it was regarded a great misfortune if parents could not leave a name or children. They regarded this as a great disfavor of God. Hence this widow, who after the death of her husband placed all her hope and comfort in her only son, must have had great sorrow when her son was torn from her and she had nothing left on earth. Under such circumstances the thoughts were undoubtedly forced upon her. Behold, you are also one of the cursed women to whom God is such an enemy that they must pass from the earth without leaving an offspring. For thus it is written in the Psalms and the Prophets that God threatens the ungodly, that he will destroy them root and branch, exactly as when one so entirely destroys a tree that neither leaf nor twig remains. This was regarded as the greatest curse and punishment, as may be seen in the lives of many emperors, kings, and princes, who were so completely destroyed that nothing is known of them. This has the appearance as if it were the utmost disfavor. Therefore this woman had great sorrow, not only because she had been robbed of her husband, and afterwards of her son, and thereby the family destroyed before her eyes, but what seems far more serious, because she was forced to think, Now I see that God is unfavorable to me, and I am cursed. For this punishment has been executed upon me, because God in the Psalms and the Prophets has threatened the ungodly to destroy them, root and branch. This has happened to me. Therefore the miracle the Lord Jesus wrought in her behalf seemed to her altogether impossible. And if someone had said to her, Thy son shall live again before your eyes, she would immediately have said, Alas, do not mock me in my deep sorrow. Grant me at least so much that I may bewail my great misery and do not add to it by your mockery. This would undoubtedly have been her answer, for she was greatly distressed, both by reason of the loss she had sustained as well as on account of her scruples of conscience. But all of this is portrayed here in order that we might learn that with God nothing is impossible, whether it be misfortune, calamity, anger, or whatever it may be, and that he sometimes allows misfortune to come upon the good as well as upon the wicked. Yea, that he even permits the ungodly to sit at ease, as in a garden of roses, and meet with success in all their undertakings, while on the other hand he appears to the pious as if he were angry with them and unfavorable to them, as, for example, it happened to the godly Job, all whose children were sadly destroyed in one day, who was robbed of his cattle and land, and his body most terribly tormented. He was an innocent man, and yet he was compelled to endure a punishment such as no ungodly person had suffered, so that at least even his friends said to him, You must undoubtedly rest under a great and secret sin since this has happened to you. While attempting to comfort him, they added to his misery. But he answered, saying, I have done nothing, and hence am not an ungodly person, whom God often allows to live in rioting and to go unpunished. So also it was undoubtedly a serious problem to the widow that the Lord our God punishes the good and evil alike. But to the godly this does not come as a mark of God's anger or disfavor, while to the ungodly it comes truly as a mark of anger, in order that they may be destroyed. For God does not trifle with them, but is truly in earnest. As to the God-fearing, who have not merited punishment, he tries to see if they will remain steadfast. If they endure the test and think, My God, though thou triest me, yet thou wilt not forsake me, he will come again and pour out his blessings as richly upon them as he did in the case of Job, 
who received twice as much as he had lost, both in property and children. The widow found all her joy in her son while he lived. God tried her and took her son from her. When she wept and cried, he came again and gave her tenfold more joy than she had had before. For she rejoiced more for her son in that one hour than she had done throughout her entire previous life. So richly does our Lord God give again, if only men endure and do not doubt him. Therefore learn from this, whoever can. If we are pious and the trials come which God sends upon us, let us cherish the thought that he means it well for us, and let us not be offended when he permits the wicked, the pope, bishops, and all others to do as they please. These think they have deserved this at the hands of our Lord God, and try to justify themselves, if punished on account of their sins. But, dear friends, let us freely confess and say, Lord, thou doest right, even though thou dost punish us. For before thee, Lord, we have no right, but we hope that thou wilt punish graciously, and in thine own good time cease. If we do thus, all distress will be removed, no matter how impossible help may seem to be. Flesh and blood, when under trial, say, all is lost. For when our Lord God makes an attack, he does it in such a manner that we know not where to turn. And hence, no matter how we think or plan, we can find no way out, but are hemmed in on every side, as Job says in chapter 3, as a man whom the Lord is surrounded with darkness. As when one is in darkness and does not know which way to turn, if the trial does not go thus far, it is no real trial. He who in hunger still knows of a supply of gold or grain is not yet in real darkness. But when one is utterly helpless and without counsel, he may be said to be really punished. As the widow's way was so hemmed in on every side that she was compelled to conclude, I am cursed, God is against me. So she was in the midst of darkness where there was neither a way nor an opening and knew not where to turn. All this is presented to us as an example, that we may learn to remain steadfast in faith and regard God in no other light than that of a merciful God, who, indeed, may permit us to be tempted, as if he were angry with us and were laughing at us with the world. But let us guard ourselves against such laughter and not become terrified at the anger with which he attacks his people. It may appear as if at times he were on the side of the wicked and persecuted the godly without mercy. Yet it does no harm, and it depends only upon a glance. But it is a blind and spiritual glance, which we must give with blind eyes, that is, with the eyes of faith, which sees nothing. For faith is invisible. Faith lays hold of things that are not seen, and of things that are not matters of experience, as it says in Hebrews 11. Philosophers have an art that deals with visible things, which can be experienced and comprehended. But a Christian deals with invisible, unsubstantial, spiritual things that cannot be seen nor comprehended, so that one can hardly think they are possible. In this state Sarah was with her reference to her son. There was nothing but the simple word. Her womb was not fit for that because of her age and her natural condition that she was barren. And her son Isaac was indeed invisible and as nothing. So this widow, with reference to her son, did not see that he lived, but only saw that he was dead. But Christ knew that he lived and brought the dead son to life, and so made the invisible visible. All this happened, as I have often said, for us to learn to trust our Lord God and believe in him in all our need, and not become terrified when we do not fare well, nor be offended if the wicked prosper. 
For our Lord God is one who tries, who allows his own to be tried and to suffer, so that they may truly perceive and learn to know that he is a gracious God, even though he at times hides his grace so deeply that it cannot be seen. Afterwards, if men persevere, it is only a matter of a single word, and the necessary assistance is rendered. As in this gospel, only a word was necessary, and the dead son was restored to life. By this he desires to show that what is impossible with us is so easy for him that it requires only one little word, arise. It is easily spoken, and yet it has such power to restore the dead to life. We should learn to know that he can and will help us out of all our needs. He who desires to be a Christian should be strong in faith and praise God and his word and should say, I will acknowledge, praise, and serve that God, and gladly do and suffer what he wills, who can so readily and easily help. Thus this and other miracles of Christ should serve to comfort us and make us better, and urge us to believe in him and serve him as no other God. For no other God manifests himself as our dear Lord Jesus has manifested himself. Therefore we praise and magnify him daily, and daily bring others to him that they also may do the same. May God continue his help more and more. This is the teaching of the gospel as presented in the example of the widow. This narrative still further exhibits the true nature of Christ's work, showing why he came and reigns, namely that he might destroy death and in its stead give life, as the prophet Isaiah says in chapter 25, he will swallow up death forever. And St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says that Christ must reign until he has destroyed the last enemy, death, for his Christians, and thus give them eternal life. After that he shall deliver up the kingdom to the Father when he shall have abolished all rule and all authority and power. This is the work he will accomplish among his people and has already begun in faith, before bodily death takes place. Afterwards, however, when he shall have brought all his own together, he will complete his work in them at the last day. Signs and types, yea, testimonies of the same, are found in this and other narratives that record the raising of people from the dead. But these form only the prelude to the work he will finally accomplish among all Christians. The pictures of both life and death are here placed over against each other, and it is shown where both originate and oppose each other, and how Christ manifests his power and authority over death. For, first, when you hear the scriptures speaking of death, you must think not only of the grave and the coffin, and of the horrible manner in which life is separated from the body, and how the body is destroyed and brought to naught, but you must think of the cause by which man is brought to death, and without which death and that which accompanies it would be impossible. This cause scripture points out and teaches, namely, that it is sin, and the wrath of God on account of sin. This cause brings death, always sticks in it, appears from it, and works and draws after it all the misery and misfortune on earth, and in addition banishes man from God and from all his grace and joy. Likewise, on the contrary, when the scriptures speak of life, you must also conceive the cause that brings and gives life. That must be the righteousness by which man is acceptable to God, and by which he also finds in God his pleasure, delight, and joy, and receives thus from God every good thing he may desire through all eternity. Both these things you see in this picture, two sorts of persons and processions the deceased with those who carry him out of the town, and Christ who comes to meet him. 
All men know very well that they must die and that all of us go the same way and see death before us, by our side and behind us. Even the learned among the heathen have complained of this misery of the human race, but they have not been able to perceive the cause of death. Most of them think death is a matter of chance, that we die like the brute and that man is so created that he must die. Others, seeing that so much misfortune, misery, and sorrow pass over the human race, that so many die before their time and many are miserably destroyed, things which could happen only by chance, have searched for the cause and have been surprised that such misfortune befalls man, who alone among all living creatures is the noblest and should be better situated and guarded against injury. But they have not been able to ascertain the cause of the evil, except in so far that they have seen how many men, through their own malignity or willfulness, have brought death and other misfortune on themselves. But this, in itself, is a matter of great wonder how a man can be so wicked that he can willfully cast himself into trouble and misery. Here scripture teaches us in the first place that death originated in paradise as a result of the eating of the forbidden fruit, that is, from the disobedience of our first parents, and since that has come upon all men on account of their sins. For if sin did not exist, there would be no death. By this we mean not only gross sins, such as adultery, murder, and the like, but they also die who neither commit nor can commit these as children in the cradle. Yea, even the great and holy prophets, John the Baptizer, all must die. Therefore some greater and different sins than murder and similar public crimes, which the executioner punishes with death, must be meant. Why the whole human race is subject to death. This is the sin which we have inherited from Adam and Eve, and from our fathers and mothers, which is innate in all men, born according to the common course of nature. This exists and remains as it did in Adam and Eve, after they had committed sin, had been banished from the presence of God, full of evil lusts and disobedience to God and His will. Hence all under the wrath of God are condemned to death, and must be forever separated from God. In this way God manifests His strong and terrible wrath against all men which we bring upon us through sin, so that all of us must be overcome by death because we are born of flesh and blood, and in consequence must bear the guilt of our parents, and thus have become sinners and worthy of death. Psalm 90 teaches us, For we are consumed in thine anger, and in thy wrath are we troubled. It is the wrath of God, he says. Hence it is not an accidental thing, or because man has been so created by God, but it is our fault that we commit sin. For since there is wrath, there must also be guilt, which causes such wrath. This wrath is not a mere ordinary thing, but such a serious affair that no one can endure it, and under which all must succumb. And yet the world is so blind that it does not see nor regard this wrath of God. Yea, even the pious do not sufficiently comprehend it. The psalmist also says in Psalm 90, Who knoweth the power of thine anger and thy wrath according to the fear that is due unto thee? Now, here you see two processions or companies meeting each other the one, the poor widow with the dead youth, and the people following him to the grave, the other, Christ, and those who went with him into the city. The first picture shows what we are and what we can bring to Christ. For this is the picture of the whole world and the way of man on the earth. There is a crowd, all of whom must follow death out of the city, and Christ, when he comes, finds nothing else than that which has to do with death. This is the whole essence of human life on the earth, if we look at it in the proper light. There is nothing but the image and work of death, 
and constant and daily approaching death until the last day, since one after another dies and the rest have to do only with the horrible affair how one may carry the other to the grave and others follow daily. They render this service to the dead in order that today or tomorrow someone else may follow them also to their graves. Wherefore Christ speaks of the character and order of our earthly life to those whom he calls into his kingdom, as in Matthew 8. Leave the dead to bury their own dead. Thus you see on this side and in this crowd of the whole world and of the human race nothing but death. We bring this with us, and with it drag ourselves from our mother's womb, and all at the same time travel the same road with one another, only that one precedes or is carried before the others, and the rest follow after until the last one dies. Nor is there any deliverance or help for this from any creature, for death rules over them all, as St. Paul says in Romans 5, and drags all of them along without the ability to resist. Yea, with such demonstration and pomp does death do this, that when he overcomes one he defies all the rest who are alive and carries the dead to the grave and shows them that he has them also in his clutches and under his power and may seize them whenever he will. But on the other hand, you see here also a comforting counterpart of life and a glorious and joyous procession of the Lord Jesus, who does not go out of the city with the dead but meets death on his way into the city, not, however, as those who return home from the grave, only until they shall carry one another out. For the Lord does not come with such thoughts of death, as if he had to fear death and come under its power, but steps into his presence and opposes him as the one who has power and authority over death. First he comforts the poor widow whose heart is filled only with death, and tells her to sorrow and weep no more, speaks other words which no one else can utter, steps up to the bier, lays his hands on it, requests the bearers to stand still, and immediately follows with a word, and says, Young man, I say to thee, arise. These words are instantly followed by such power and efficacy that the dead man did not lie as before, but sat up, bound and covered as he was, began to speak and showed that he was no longer dead but alive. This was a wonderful and quick change from death to life on the part of the young man. Where the spark of life had long been extinguished and there was truly no sign of life, there are instantly and fully restored breath, blood, sensibility, movement, thought, speech, and everything else that belongs to life. And Christ with one word turned the sad and sorrowing procession and the carrying of the dead from the gate of the city into a joyous, lovely, and beautiful procession of life in which both the youth who was being carried by four or more to be buried under the ground together with his sorrowing mother, joyously follow the Lord Jesus, accompanied by the whole crowd, into the city, forgetting death, the bier, and the grave, and speaking joyously and thankfully only of life. But the glory and honor of this work belong only to the Lord Jesus, through whose power and authority alone death can be removed and life brought forth from it, as he also proves. Hence the fame and report concerning Christ, of which this gospel speaks, saying that it went forth throughout the whole country, is recorded for our consolation and joy over against the fear and dread of death, in order that we may know what kind of a Savior we have in Christ. For he so manifested himself on earth in his ministry, office, and form of his servant, that he can be known as the Lord both of death and life, to destroy the former and bring the latter to light. 
that although he often met death and fought with it, as in the case of the daughter of Jairus, and again in that of Lazarus, and at last in his own person, he nevertheless finally overcame and destroyed it. Christ also desires to prove in our death and that of all Christians, since death casts every one of us under the ground, and it thinks it has completely swallowed all. As Christ promised and confirmed by his own mouth and word in John chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Again in John chapter 5, The hour cometh in which all that are in the tomb shall hear his voice and shall come forth. Then only the work which he has portrayed in this example shall really begin, which he has put off until the time since he wishes to complete it, not only in one or a few, but at one time in all, in order to destroy death with one blow, as it says in Isaiah 25, so that no one shall forever afterwards be overcome or taken captive by it. This shall then form a truly joyous and glorious procession, when he shall bring together in a moment of time all who have died, calling them forth with one word from the earth, dust and ashes, air, water, and all other places. And as St. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, will bring with himself as the head in an innumerable company all believers, having freed all from death and given them eternal life. And Isaiah 25 says, having wiped away all tears from their eyes, so that they may forever and without ceasing praise and glorify their Lord with everlasting joy, praise, and honor. We should also learn to believe this and comfort ourselves in the hour of death and in all other distresses, so that although we may come to such straits that we neither see nor feel anything else than death and destruction, as in the case of this poor widow because of her son, yea, even though we may be in the clutches of death as her son on the bier and on the way to the tomb, yet that we may nevertheless firmly conclude that in Christ we have obtained victory over death and life. For faith in Christ must be so disposed, as the epistle to the Hebrews in chapter 11 teaches, that it can grasp and hold fast those things that cannot, yea, those things which only the antithesis can be seen, as in this case, Christ wants this widow to believe in and hope for life when he says, Weep not. Although such faith was indeed weak and small in her, as it also is in us, since she and all the world had in their minds feelings and thoughts that despaired of life, for he desires to teach us that also in our experience there is nothing in us or apart from us except only corruption and death, but only from him and in him only life which shall swallow up both our sin and death. Yea, the more misery and death are in us, the more and the more richly shall we find comfort and life in him, provided we hold fast to him by faith, in which he spurs us on and admonishes us both through his word and such examples as the one before us. Amen. This has been a presentation of classical Lutheran preaching from the Sermons of Martin Luther, the John Nicholas Lenker Collection of 1905, and reprinted by Baker Bookhouse in 1983.